Good morning. If you guys have a Bible, open it up to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to read from chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 3. While you guys are turning there, I want to make one or two quick announcements. Some of y'all perhaps were hoping to apply for our summer project trips to East Asia, North Africa, and Greece this summer. Um, You may be uh, sad because the deadline passed on Friday, uh, which is true, the deadline passed. We have actually decided to extend the deadline just a little bit. So uh, if you are still interested in applying, you can still apply this week. So the new deadline is February 19th. This really is the deadline, though. So uh, we would love for you guys to apply um, you can go onto our website, you can find the application there, and then you fill out the application, we'll do an interview with you, and uh, we will be praying that some more of you guys will join up with us. We're excited, and uh, the teams are starting to come together. So uh, the second thing I would say, and this is partly for the benefit of uh, those who listen on podcasts, but also in here, if there happen to be any children, and I don't see any this morning, but occasionally there are in here, uh, this week and the next couple of weeks are a little bit more mature topics. So if you're sitting with young children, you may want to take them out of the room before, you, uh, before we begin. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do want to live our lives pursuing holiness, sanctification. We want to be continually setting ourselves apart to be like Jesus Christ, to pursue Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we study, you would um, allow your word to sink into our hearts and into our minds and into our spirits this morning. Father, uh, even as I pray, I know that there are many of us, if not all of us, who have fallen short of your ideals in this area, this critical area of sexuality. And so, Father, we pray that uh, we would understand and experience your grace this morning, but also understand and obey your truth from your word. Father, give us wisdom, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want uh, you just to think about a question in your head. You don't have to answer me out loud. Please don't. Uh, But uh, the uh, question I would ask you is, when did you first learn about sex? When did you first learn about uh, how babies are made, maybe the fact that Boys and girls are different, all of those good things. When was it? Uh, I can remember distinctly when it was for me, uh, and this is a story that's going to sound quaint probably to many of you, but uh, I was about maybe seven, eight, nine years old, and my dad one evening said, Matt, tomorrow morning, I'm waking you up early, we're going fishing. Now, uh, this was unusual because we lived in Dallas, in a suburb of Dallas, and uh, we had never gone fishing before in our lives. We actually had to drive a good distance to find a place to fish, right? And so uh, in my mind, I, I, 
I imagine that I thought either this is an important conversation or we're running out of money for food or something like that and we have to go and fish. So uh, my dad took me fishing and as we sat along the shore of this lake, we caught zero fish, uh, but I learned a great deal about life. And that was where I remember learning about sex and what it is and what the purpose is of it and how it works and all of those things. Uh, One of my brothers, my younger brother, was actually a good deal younger because when he was four or five, he began asking my dad some questions. And as he asked more and more questions, my dad realized, wow, he's really wanting to understand this and he's asking the right questions. So dad answered his questions and explained it all to him one day. And uh, after they were finished talking, my younger brother kind of looked at him and thought for a minute and goes, that's disgusting, all right? Because his only, uh, I guess, paradigm at that time was this is how I came into this world, right? And that may have been your original reaction. Now, for some of you, those stories sound really quaint because you may have heard about sex in an entirely different context, right? Maybe you heard from friends at school at a recess on the playground and you didn't believe it until you went home and checked with your parents and they gave you a book, right? Maybe you saw something on TV. Maybe you saw something on the internet. Uh, Maybe it is that from a very young age, You began to understand uh, what sex is, and perhaps the concepts about it were presented to you in a way that was not God-honoring, but maybe it is that from your youth, you've been steeped in an understanding of sexuality that is uh, rooted in our culture's understanding of sexuality and not God's. Uh, Just a few statistics about where our culture is on sexuality. I wanted to share some of these with you all this morning. 90%, the latest statistics say, 90% of 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography online. 90%. That suggests that the vast majority of you in here, at some point in your life, have viewed pornography online. The average age of first exposure is 11 years old. 11 years old. And some of you resonate with that perhaps because maybe it was younger. Maybe it was a little older when you were first exposed to pornography, and the average age is 11 years old, 70% of television shows have some sexual content, averaging five scenes per hour. Now, that, that statistic is actually about five years old, and I would imagine that the shows that aren't included are things like Sesame Street, right? Shows where you wouldn't expect that at all, but virtually every primetime drama, comedy, reality show, whatever it is, has some reference to or depiction of sexual activity. So really from the time that you have been old enough to perceive with your eyes and hear with your ears, you have been steeped in a culture of sexuality. And in fact, a culture that is, uh, has a view of sexuality that is opposed to the view of the scripture. And I think that what's happened to many of us is we've begun to buy into the world's idea of what sex ought to be. And so there's an epidemic of negative sexuality in our country and in our world. A couple more statistics for you. 65% of high school seniors have had sexual intercourse, all right? And another 23 to 25% have had oral sex, all right? Those are the ones that report having had oral sex, but not intercourse. And then, of course, there's some overlap. But add those numbers together and you get about 90%. That doesn't include the ones that are lying to the surveyor, and that doesn't include the ones that may be engaged in other activities besides one of those two, right? So we live in a culture that is absolutely saturated with sexuality. 
And as you guys are sitting here this morning, I'm aware that there are many of us, if not all of us, that at some point in our lives have failed in this area. And many of you sitting here, even this morning, you may be failing in this area right now. And so as we talk about this, I want to talk about it from two perspectives. One, it's a critical topic because the scripture has a perspective on sexuality and it goes beyond just what you may have heard in youth group, which is don't do it, right? Or from your father, ladies, maybe your dad said, uh, daughter, If you do this, there will be a a dead young man and a father in jail, right? right, But there is a biblical perspective that goes beyond that. Although uh, sex outside of marriage is clearly prohibited, uh, there is a reason for that. And there is a reason God created sexuality. So it's a critical topic. And we want to talk about what is the truth of what the scripture says about this topic. But I also want to talk about it from the standpoint of grace, recognizing that wherever you are in this process of growth toward Christ-likeness. Wherever you find yourself, uh, whatever you have done, there is redemption and grace in Jesus Christ. So even as we talk about issues that are difficult and issues that even some of you this morning, you're feeling shame and guilt, perhaps about things you did as recently as last night. I want you to be aware that there is grace and forgiveness and renewal and restoration in Jesus Christ, that you can live a life of purity and virtue and sanctification, as Paul writes. So what we want to do this morning is I'm just going to walk us through what does the Bible say is the purpose of sexuality? What are some ways in which we've got it wrong? And then what are some things, practical steps I can take if I find myself needing restoration or renewal or forgiveness in this area? All right, so where we're going to start is this. What does God intend? What is the plan? What does God intend? And ultimately what we see in scripture is this, that sexuality, sex is about much more than just the intermingling of body parts. It's about much more than pleasure. It is about two men and women who come together. Two men and women, excuse me. Yes, one man and one woman. Make that clear from the beginning. One man, one woman who come together, right, in the context of a marriage, right, in the context of a marriage where they are sharing not just pleasure, they're sharing not just the exchanging of bodies, but the sharing of a life. All right, the term intimacy gets thrown around a lot and it's become a term that refers to uh, just the sex act. All right, but as we look biblically, that's not an appropriate description of what sex is. Sex is meant to be one thing shared in the context of a life that is shared. Two people that step outside of themselves to cooperate with another person to bring a, a sense of joy and a sense of encouragement and a sense of God's presence to another person. And so sex ultimately in marriage is I am stepping outside of myself to do what is best and good and right for this person. And in a healthy marriage, it is a reflection of what's going on throughout the whole rest of the week. And it's a reflection of the fact that, yes, I wake up in the morning and I'm willing to change the diapers and I'm willing to do the dishes and my wife speaks kindly to me and she cares for me. And so the two of us, when we come together and engage in sexuality and marriage, it's much more than just the intermingling of bodies, but it is the intermingling of persons, right? And it goes all the way back, that perspective goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two, right? God intends marriages that reflect Christ's love. Let's look at a few passages. The man Adam gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All right, and that word helper doesn't just mean like you're my little helper, right? The the word helper is more the idea of a partner, somebody who has your back, somebody who compliments you. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I read this passage in the context of a wedding a couple of years ago. And um, after I read it, I heard some adults in one area of the auditorium kind of snickering. And I thought, that's strange. These are adults. Why are they laughing? Well, I found out later as I read it, and I read that last line, there was a little boy about six or seven who goes, gross, like right as I, <laughs> right as I read it, all right? But, but the passage as we read it, of course, it's not, it's not disgusting to us who read it because we understand what God intends for the sexual relationship is that two people who are committed to knowing God and to pursuing God and to reflecting him in the earth, they come together and they create this one flesh relationship that reflects the love that God has for his people. And ultimately, when you get into the New Testament, that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter five. Let me read that. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, that's from Genesis 2, right? This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, do you see now why sexuality outside the context of marriage is forbidden? All right, it's not because God is just attempting to limit your fun to a short period of your life. Right, the reason is because in the marriage relationship through sexuality, I reflect the commitment and the love and the selflessness of Jesus Christ. And that means I come to that relationship not primarily to get my needs met, but to love and meet the needs of another person. Right, so if I move from one person to the next person to the next person, what does that communicate to the world about the love of Christ? If I'm a Christian in whom the Spirit of God dwells and I have sex with one person and then I abandon and move on, what does that communicate about the love of Jesus Christ? At lest you think that it's then saying, well, you know, cohabitation would probably be okay because I'm just having sex with one person for a long period of time. The problem in that instance is this, that it is intended to be in the context of a lifelong commitment that when you look at the book of Romans, Jesus Christ, how has he treated his church? He said, I will never leave, never forsake you. And so it's intended in the context where I'm willing to stand up in front of my family, my friends and God and say, I will never leave. And so I can look my wife in the eye and say, I will never leave. And when I love you in this way, it is a depiction of the love that Jesus Christ has for the church. All right, it goes much bigger and much broader than just pleasure. And I think what our culture has tried to create is this mindset where sex is just about pleasure, getting my needs met. And biblically, it's so much bigger than that. It's about the intermingling of lives. And that is why, uh, by the way, that the best sex is actually not being had by 20-year-old actors or actresses. It's being had by Christian men and women who've been married for 10, 15, 20 years. I hate to tell you this, but your parents may be having better sex than your friends, right? Now, you may have just thrown up in your mouth, or you may be thinking, my parents aren't having sex, right, or anything along those lines. But the truth is that statistically, uh, they've done studies that have shown that women who are Christian women in a marriage uh, consistently report higher levels of sexual satisfaction than single women who are engaging in sex outside of marriage or women who do not have this uh, Christian understanding of the world. 
Consistently, they've demonstrated that. And one of the great passages that demonstrates that in the scripture is from the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 7. If you have a Bible, turn there for just a minute. Song of Solomon. It's kind of toward the middle after Ecclesiastes, but before Isaiah. If you're in Psalms or Proverbs, you need to go a little bit further toward the right. If you're in Isaiah, go back a little bit toward the left. It's probably about four pages in your Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. All right, this is later on, most uh, commentators believe, later on in the marriage of Solomon and his bride. This is not their honeymoon night, but this is after they have matured in their relationship. He begins to describe her beauty. And he says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess's daughter. Let me stop there. Notice where he starts, her feet. How many of you women spent a long time working on your feet this morning to get really pretty and make sure you had good feet? Probably none of you. Maybe a few of you. Spend some time on your toenails or something, right? If you're wearing sandals. The reality is it's not the part of a woman's body that we naturally think this is the part I'm going to zoom in on and think about the most. Okay, what is it saying? What it is saying ultimately is this, that by this point in their relationship, he has gotten to a place where he admires all of her beauty, all of her beyond just this one part, but all of her beauty. And he begins with her feet. And now he's going to say, the curves of your hip are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Now, obviously, this is all metaphorical, right? Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. I I know that doesn't sound like a compliment, all right? But (laughs) it was, all right? Your head crowns you like caramel. And the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Again, he goes beyond physical beauty and he begins to compliment her whole person. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. May your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. All right, now, obviously, that's a pretty racy passage. Some of you are kind of sweating, right? You're fanning yourself. But the reality is, this is a depiction of what sexuality in a mature marriage is meant to be. He compliments all of her, not just her body, but how beautiful, how delightful, how wonderful you are. And then what happens at the end is they fall asleep and they stay together. Right? It's not in the backseat of a pinto, right? And he runs off. He's with her in the context of a loving relationship. Interestingly, just kind of for a little bit of humor, I uh, found, uh, I saw several years ago, somebody had taken this depiction and drawn it out as if it were literal, all right? So so there she is. Her hair is a flock of goats. You know, there's the pomegranates on her temples and her nose. And uh, let's see, her neck is the Tower of Damascus. That says Damascus. So Anyway, the belly is a heap of wheat. You get the idea. Obviously, that's not literally what he's intending, but he is complimenting the beauty of his bride. All right? The beauty of his bride in the context of a marital relationship. All right? Uh, I'm going to take that off the screen. So, it won't. All, right. all right. Ultimately, sex and marriage creates marriages that reflect the love of Jesus Christ. What's interesting, go sometime. We're not going to read it right now, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about how in in the marriage relationship, the wife's body uh, belongs to her husband, the husband's body belongs to his wife, and the two of them then uh, come together and they meet each other's needs. 
So it's a relationship in which I come primarily not to meet my needs, not to seek my pleasure, but in the context of this commitment that reflects Jesus Christ, I meet the needs of another person, and I love another person. And and of course, what flows out of that then is is children who love Jesus. As you look at the scripture, after Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, what's first real command that God gives them is this, Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He places them on the earth and he encourages them, multiply. This relationship of love that reflects Jesus Christ then produces offspring who multiply throughout the earth and in God, on God's behalf, they rule the earth and they reflect God's glory. So ultimately what happens is in a Christian family, in the center of that Christian family, you have a husband and a wife who love each other and they demonstrate that love in all kinds of ways. And sex provides like a a little fire that keeps that love going, keeps that love burning and it creates a warmth and a joy then that permeates the household. So these kids grow up in a household where God is honored and where the love of Christ is demonstrated so they can go out in the world and glorify God. Psalm 127 says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak just for a moment to this issue of sex. Part of the purpose is to produce children. Now, I'm not saying by that that I think in all instances, all the time, birth control is wrong and we can discuss that offline at some point. But what I am saying is this, that we live in a culture that has attempted to completely decouple this concept of procreating godly men and women. We've tried to decouple that from sexuality altogether. And as a result, we have a a culture that has no understanding of what sex is for. Next week, we're going to talk about the issue of life. And part of what we're going to talk about is abortion. And And I realize, again, some of you may have experienced that or know friends who have experienced that. But biblically, what, what, what that is, is it, it's... It is the taking of a life, yes, but it's also a complete misunderstanding of the fact that sex is intended, ultimately, to procreate children who will glorify God. And again, all kinds of qualifications I could make to that. I know there are some who cannot have children. That doesn't make them lesser people. But it is intended to create a family in which men and women go out from there and they glorify God. So that's what, what we see biblically sex is for. Now, obviously, culturally, personally, relationally, we've gotten it wrong in many different ways. So I want to talk for just a few minutes about what are some of the things that derail the plan? How have we gotten it wrong? Right? And again, in that context, I realize uh, many of us, if not most of us, have gotten it wrong. Right? Some of you, though, you may be here and you don't really understand what the Bible says or maybe saying, why, why is it that I need to wait until I'm married to have sex? Why is it that... Uh, pornography is a sin. Why is it? And ultimately what we're going to see is all of these areas where we've gotten it wrong are areas in which we've taken God's plan and we've distorted it. And we've used it in a way that is not intended to reflect Christ's love in a marriage relationship and then ultimately to produce children that glorify God. First major way in which we've got it wrong, of course, is sex outside of marriage. All right, again, Biblical sexual uh, sexual immorality, what we're going to see as we look at these passages, it doesn't merely involve sexual intercourse, but a broad range of sexual activity. All right, Hebrews 13.4 would be the first passage. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. All right, the writer of Hebrews uses two words here. Sexually immoral is a word, uh, pornos. 
All right, there's, a, there's also an adjective, porneia. We get the modern word pornography, but in the Greek language, it has the idea not just of visual sexual immorality and not even just the act of intercourse, but it's a broad range of sexual immorality. All right, it would include touching somebody sexually. It would include looking at somebody sexually. It would include being in any way with a person sexually or engaging in any sexual activity that's outside of this plan of a man and a woman in a committed marriage to glorify Jesus Christ. The other term he uses is adulterers, which specifically refers to those who are married and step outside of that marriage to, to have sex. All right, so both of those here are condemned. And again, the reason is because it doesn't honor what God's plan is. First Thessalonians chapter four, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Again, that word porneia, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I mean, what, the, what Paul is saying in Thessalonians is this, that ultimately he uses that word pornea again. He says all sexual activity outside of marriage is considered a sin. And I want to say that because some of you have set up in your mind a technical distinction. If I'm not engaging in sexual intercourse with penetration, then I'm not having sex. Right? And yet biblically, sex involves a lot more than just this one act. It involves a broad range of, of what we would call immoral sexual activity. And the author of Thessalonians says you're doing two things when you're engaging in sexual immorality. One, you are defrauding another person. Perhaps that person's future spouse. Certainly the person with whom you're engaging in these activities. You're stealing from their walk with the Lord and you're pulling them into sin. But two, you're also dishonoring God. Right? And what Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 6 is the spirit of God lives in you for the purpose of sanctification. So when you sin against your body, you're sinning against the temple of God. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ, God lives in you. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Same word, again, porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The issue is God owns you. He bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ. So to take that body that he bought and use it for sexual immorality is at odds with what God intends. And both 1 Thessalonians and Corinthians suggest the judgment of God upon those who disobey this command. And I think the judgment of God can come in many forms. And certainly it affects your relationship with God. Time and time again, uh, young men come in to talk to me. Young women come in to talk to our staff and just racked with guilt. Can't pray, can't read the scripture because of behavior they're engaged in. And the spirit of God that lives within them is just pounding them with guilt and conviction. And often I'll challenge a student to say, you should take that as a gift from God, that he's still trying to speak to you. So listen. Uh, Statistics show also another consequence is later in life marital distress. The study that was done in 1988 by the National Survey of Family Growth uh, indicated that those who engaged in premarital sex, particularly they studied women, 
They said these women were 60% more likely to get a divorce than those who waited for marriage, 60% more likely. And primarily that was due to a difference in values. In other words, the idea of the study ran, and this was not a Christian study, this was a a social study. The idea of the study ran, if they are willing to violate particular norms now, they are more willing to violate them later and engage in a divorce or an extramarital affair. The good news about that is there's nothing magical about your past failures that's going to keep you from having a good marriage. What matters is aligning your values with those of Jesus Christ. And if you can do that now, ultimately you up the odds of having a successful marriage down the road. All right, and of course, another possible consequence is disease. Uh, studies show that one in four female adolescents age 14 to 19, one in four has either HPV, chlamydia, genital herpes, or trichomoniasis. Right? It doesn't count HIV. That doesn't count a number of other diseases, syphilis, and others that you could look at. So Paul and the writers of the New Testament say the judgment of God comes upon those who do these things. And the question is, why would I risk these consequences for short-term pleasure and and forfeit, perhaps, the future of a close walk with God and a healthy marriage and family? Sometime read Proverbs chapter 5. I don't have time this morning, but Proverbs chapter 5 is a depiction of the beauty of sex and marriage, but also the danger of adultery. And it talks about the adulteress who is waiting to capture this young man, and it's an imagery of how adultery will ultimately lead to one's destruction. And it reminds me when I read it, honestly, of uh, once a year, some of the pastors and some of the staff here in the past, we've gone hunting turkeys. And I don't know if any of you have ever gone to hunt turkeys before, but you put out a little decoy that looks like a little girl turkey. And you set it out there and you make a little call uh, with this little box, you know, that's supposed to sound like a, a little girl turkey who wants to find a little boy turkey. And so you make a little call and you hide up in the bushes, right? And after a while, you see, if you're lucky, a turkey come running for that decoy, believing that he's found himself a date, right? And as he begins to run, what happens? He runs up to that decoy, looks at it, realizes this is not what I expected. Boom, right? And then you got him. And when I read Proverbs 5, that's what it reminds me of. We run headlong into our destruction sometimes. We think that we're going to experience joy and pleasure and fun and all of these things. And then down the road, we find it brings the judgment of God. Another way I think in which we've gotten it wrong is pornography, lust. All right, Matthew five twenty-seven, a passage many of you are familiar with. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, I mentioned earlier, 90% of young adult men report using pornography. All right, interestingly, this is becoming increasingly a female problem as well. 31% of young women now in studies acknowledge using pornography. It's an epidemic. All right, so I talk about this with the understanding that this is not just a guy thing. Ladies, if you are not personally struggling with this, I guarantee you know a girl or two who is. And it's become an epidemic. And many of you, again, saw it when you were young. I can distinctly remember the time when I was about 12 years old. And I opened up my locker and somebody had shoved a picture into my locker that was pornography. This was back before the internet, believe it or not. All right, I'm not that old, okay? But the reality is that it used to be if you wanted to find pornography, you had to go seek it out. You had to drive to another part of town. Now, you guys have grown up with it in your face all the time. And in a sense, your generation has been sold down the river. A lie about sexuality 
that it's all about me and looking at an image and fantasizing. And then I come to that to get my needs met. And as a result, often I've seen men and women carry that attitude into their sexual relationship and marriage. And they expect their spouse to be the perfectly pleasing airbrushed model they see in the picture. And that person cannot measure up. And not only that, but it creates an attitude of utter selfishness. This past week, um, John Mayer has been in the news quite a bit. Uh, If you've been reading the news, because he did an interview in which he said some things that were offensive and stupid and a number of different things. Uh, But uh, one of the uh, quotes that I ran across in the news that John Mayer said in this interview, he said, by the way, pornography, it's a new synaptic pathway. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. There have probably been days when I saw 300 naked girls before I got out of bed. Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. Now listen to this carefully. He says, 20 seconds ago, you thought that photo was the hottest thing you ever saw, but you throw it back and continue your shot hunt and continue to make yourself late for work. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. Absolutely. Because during sex, I'm just going to run a film strip. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. It's tragic. And I really debated whether to read that quote, and I've edited it significantly because it's a lot more graphic than that. But it's tragic because here's a man that now is incapable of engaging in the kind of life-on-life, intimate relationship that sex is intended to be. And he's more comfortable in his room with a magazine than he is with a real live person. Some of you are finding yourself in that position. You're headed down that path. My exhortation to you is uh, begin to get some help now. Even if you're not looking at what you would consider explicit pornography, our culture is filled with sexualized images. It might be a movie, it might be a TV show, whether it's Gossip Girl or Grey's Anatomy or whatever it is. It might be a romantic novel. All of these things can create perceptions of sex that are unrealistic and disconnected from what God intends it to be. And it may be that you need to seek some kind of help. We'll talk about that soon. Briefly, I'm going to cover these last couple of points. Third way is homosexuality. I'm not going to talk about this a lot this morning. The reason is because in two weeks, we're going to devote kind of a whole morning to what does the scripture say about this topic. It's become apparent to me that it's an issue that needs addressing from the scripture. All right, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with this issue, I'm not here to cast condemnation upon you. But, But I am here to communicate to you that the scripture says this is not what God's plan is for sexuality. And it can have devastating consequences in your walk with God as well as your relationship with others. But again, with all of these, there's forgiveness and peace in Jesus Christ for those who will come to him for it. And then the final one, of course, is just plain selfishness. Uh, Shannon and I, when we got married, we engraved um, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 on the inside of our wedding bands to remind us of the selflessness of Jesus Christ who was equal to God and yet then became a man and died on our behalf. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And we put it in there to remind ourselves, and uh, there are many days where I I don't remember that, and where I'm selfish. And so if I come to my wife, and in our relationship, and I am acting selfishly, uh, believe me, our sexual relationship is not going to be what either of us would like it to be. And what happens is when we come to a relationship primarily to get our needs met, rather than to reflect the love and selflessness of Jesus Christ, 
then we're short-circuiting what God wants to do. So let me just briefly, real quickly, give us some steps to take. If this is an area you're struggling, I would challenge you, don't leave here today without taking some kind of a step to reach resolution, to begin to come to a place where in the future, when you get married, or maybe some of you are married right now, and you need to reclaim a place where sexuality is what God intends it to be. But don't leave here without taking a step forward in this, all right? It may be that you need to go home and you need to email me or you need to email a staff member or you need to talk to somebody else. You don't feel comfortable coming to talk to me this morning in front of everybody, fine. But move forward in this this week. Just a few suggestions. First of all, pursue Jesus, first and foremost. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know that uh, whatever you've done, the sin that you've committed, whatever it is, Jesus died, God's perfect son died to pay the penalty of your sin. He rose again and he defeated sin. And if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. But even more than that, the spirit of God will live within you and give you the ability and the opportunity to do God's will. Maybe that you just need to rededicate yourself. You are a Christian. You need to recommit yourself to saying, I'm going to pursue Jesus Christ. Instead of waking up in the morning and looking at pornography, Instead of going to bed at night and trying to see how far I can go with my boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm going to spend that time devoted to knowing Jesus Christ. Pursue Jesus. Realign your perspective of sex, which we've tried to do this morning. Begin to realize it's not for my gratification. This is a, this is a huge change from what our culture says about it. But it's to glorify God in the context of my marriage by loving another person. Seek accountability and good accountability. I'll tell you guys... Um, I have, personally, accountability software on my computer. Guys, girls, if you're struggling with this, covenanteyes.com, it's $7 a month. It's worth it. Because at some point, me and a couple of other friends of mine who are ministers in town decided, you know, it's just not worth it to risk our families, our walk with God, our careers, our relationships, because we want to look at a picture one day. So every week, it sends a report of what I've been looking at on the internet to somebody else. I challenge you guys, if you're not in that kind of accountability relationship, where a person will really ask you about it, right? Then I'll go, oh, you looked at pornography? Bummer, right? And then just walk away. You need real accountability. Somebody that you trust to tell you the truth. Somebody that maybe you're a little bit nervous about talking to. Take radical steps if necessary. If you have to get rid of your wireless card, not have roommate, internet in your room. Use internet only on campus. If you have to even break up a relationship because it's keeping you from knowing Jesus Christ, do it to seek holiness. Right? And then finally, take advantage of some resources that are available. TripleXChurch.com. I realize that's a horrible uh, website address for a Christian website, but they are actually a Christian uh, website for men and women who are struggling with this area of pornography or lust. And they've got some great resources and some great information. Uh, There's also a uh, course that you could take on there, and I've known people who've taken it called x3pure.com. You go to that, and there's a course. It's about 100 bucks, and it's several video lessons where they will talk to you about how can I deal with this issue of lust and sexuality and, and master lust and sexuality in a way that honors God. I would encourage you, if you have friends or you yourself need that kind of help, it's anonymous, it's 100 bucks, and it's a great course, I challenge you to do it. All right, take advantage of some of the resources that are available. Victory and purity are possible in Jesus Christ. I want to quickly just give you my email address as well as another staff member's email address. If you have questions, you want to email us, you want to talk to us. First of all, my name is Matt Morton, for those of you that I haven't met. This is my email address. I'm the college pastor here. Uh, I would 
uh, be available and open to talking. If you say, man, I really, I'm in a relationship, I'm struggling, I want to do it God's way, uh, or I'm struggling with this area of lust or pornography or whatever it is, feel free to email me. I, I will be more than available to talk with you. Right, but don't go another week without seeking some sort of help and accountability. Also, our college women's director, Sarah, is sitting right here. Sarah, can you stand up real quick so everybody can see you? All right, Sarah, uh, ladies in particular, Sarah is very wise and uh, very skilled, and uh, she did not want to stand up, but I asked her if she would stand up so that you guys uh, could see her face and know that she also is very willing to talk to you, and that's her email address as well. Let me just challenge you guys uh, to begin to think of sexuality from God's perspective. All right, and then take whatever steps you need to do to do it the way that God is calling us to do it so that we can be holy and sanctified and set apart to reflect to the world the love of Jesus Christ rather than our own selfishness. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much for this morning. We're grateful. Lord, let us live in sanctification and honor and holiness not like those who don't know God. Father, I pray if there are any in here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ, that they would trust in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we've used our bodies that are dishonoring to you. Let us use our bodies in ways that please you and reflect Jesus. Lord, I pray uh, that we would lean upon the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ for those areas where we've fallen and recommit ourselves to walking closely with him. I pray we would make the changes we need to make, even if it means getting rid of a computer or changing uh, the nature of a relationship or even ending a relationship. God, give us wisdom. Lord, we thank you. We pray that your word would sink into our hearts and our minds and our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. See you all next week.